Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. And now, enjoy our latest episode. Many of them are victims of like trafficking and things along those lines. And there's so many are sensitive issues that come out of that. As a human, I don't want to re-victimize somebody that's been targeted and, and victimized for years. The relationship between a reporter and a public information officer can often be problematic. That can sometimes make it difficult for them each to do their jobs, which in some respects is the same, providing accurate information quickly to the public. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Robert Tornabene is the Senior Public Communications Supervisor for the Colorado Springs Police Department in Colorado. He also is the producer of the PIO podcast in which he interviews public information and public affairs officers or who work for public sector organizations. Robert, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you. I'm very, very happy to be here. This is a uh going to be a pleasure for me. So I'm really looking forward to the interaction. Okay. Yeah. I kind of feel like, you know, maybe this is, <laughs> we're both doing podcasts, the same coin, but on different sides sometimes. So let's start off with, you know, your career in, in public affairs. You know, how did you become a public information officer and, and, and what path led you to Colorado Springs Police Department? Let me see. I, I was in law enforcement for 26 and a half years, but yeah, I started my career as a public information officer Around 2010, I had been asked to transfer to an administrative role in the department and take over the, the public information officer responsibilities. When I got in there, I looked at it. I was like, oh, my God, this is so inadequate in getting information out there to the community. We did not have one social media account. We did not have a automated or not even an automated. We didn't even have a digital way of putting out incidents or communicating to the media. They used to have to come in, sit down, read all the reports that were redacted, and then pick out which ones that they wanted to release to the public. The problem is, is it was three, four, sometimes five days after something happened. It wasn't very timely. So I started, initially, I got rid of all the redacted reports, and then I started summarizing events and putting it out on a daily basis. And what that did is allow the media to come back right away and and run through those and pick out what they wanted to do and what they wanted to talk about or what a particular case interested them. And it worked in a much quicker fashion. That went out like at 10 o'clock in the morning from the following day. So it usually worked very well. So as I went through my career, I continued to, and it was an ancillary job as a public information officer. It wasn't a, a full-time position, but I jumped into Twitter. That was the first platform that we moved into. Then we moved into Facebook, we moved into Instagram, we had a Pinterest, we had a YouTube channel, and all of that stuff was run by me, and it became a much bigger beast, so to speak. And as I went through my career, I continued to expand on that, and probably around 20, 2018, I was talking to a colleague at a training class, and by the way, I used to do training for social media for agencies that did not have really social media accounts, how to get them started, what they needed to do. And while I was teaching one of these classes, a colleague said to me, hey, do we have a state agency for public information officers? And I said, not really. So I kind of started a regional group with another colleague 
and that kind of blossomed. We had a we had a couple state conferences, and since I've retired, I think the organization kind of went defunct. But it did work. It connected us with journalists. We had meetings with journalists pretty regularly where we would sit down and do a panel discussion, what they needed to hear from us, what information we did, print, radio, television, and newspapers. And we talked about just about everything that they needed to know and how we can work together to get information out to the public. Fast forward up to 20, 2020, my wife ended up with a medical issue. I turned around and because of that medical issue, I was like, okay, I need to take care of my wife and my family. I ended up deciding to retire. And six months after that, she's fine. So our medical issue, we were able to get it cleared up pretty quickly. And now I'm 53 years old and I don't know what I'm going to do with my life because I'm retired, but, and I'm doing fine, but I'm like, ah, I think I want to do something else. Now that was May of 2020. That was the height of the pandemic when I retired. So she went through all of her medical issues and was pretty much done by the end of 2020. And I'm like, what am I going to do here? I got to do something. So I'm looking for jobs. And of course, obviously, there's not a whole lot of hiring going on during the pandemic. But I'm like, I'm going to start a podcast about PIOs because here's a great way to put my name out there to talk to other PIOs, hear about maybe potential jobs that are that are out there. And I started the podcast and I started interviewing for jobs. And I interviewed pretty much all over the country, everywhere from Alexandria Police Department, all the way through New York, Austin, Texas, California, and then Colorado Springs came up and there was an opportunity there. And, and I interviewed and I ended up getting the job and, you know, I moved out here. My wife is still back in Illinois because she's got a job. She hasn't retired yet. So we're, she's planning on that. But right now I'm in Colorado Springs and I'm still doing the podcast. And the podcast became a passion beast for me. It became a really great tool to learn about how other PIOs are doing what they do. I can definitely relate to that. It's the same experience that I had. I was intrigued about you know journalism and what this new technology meant. And I also, at the same time, I wanted to you know, sort of brought in the scope of what I knew and skills I had. And it was also sort of a learning opportunity, you know, talking to these people who were doing their jobs well and seeing how, you know, their focus, how they thought, you know, how they approached their jobs. Had you any experience before in, in doing a podcast or did you just sort of dive in? No, I kind of dived in. I did a lot of research on it. I started looking at what methods. I listened to a lot of podcasts, though, and, and that did help kind of formulate the model that I've come up with that I do now. And in the beginning, my audio was not all that great. And I learned how to do things on audacity and you kind of learn as you go. But the website that hosts my podcast, they have a lot of great training that they have available. So it was relatively easy to get myself up and running and started. It was the hardest thing was finding the guests. And that was what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to run one podcast episode and then stop. I think I lined up my first 10 guests before I even launched the podcast because I everybody said, if you don't have at least 10 episodes, it's going to be difficult for you to create a following. And then, of course, it was creating a Twitter, creating a Facebook, and I developed that, moved on that as time went on. Yeah. This is the question, everybody. How do you, uh, you know, how do you find your guests? 
so I have a, a Google search set up and one of the, the searches is public information. So I'll look to see things that are happening. So I look for a couple things. Number one, I look for like major incidents that have happened and I'll come back to them six months down the line. I'll, you know, I'll jot their name down. I'll come back to them six months down the line and say, Hey, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit if you can talk about this incident and what you did and how you dealt with it. I just had the PIO from Michigan State University on that talked about the shooting that occurred at Michigan State. That was a really great interview. It was a really interesting learning experience for the listeners because there's some little things in there that we don't necessarily think about. Like one of the things that she did is she immediately put her voicemail and with a note saying, don't leave a message, follow the, our Twitter account. Everything will be official through our Twitter account. And that was kind of an interesting segue because if you think about it, you're, if you're a one or two man operation, your phone's overwhelmed. You're never going to get to all those messages. And if you can at least give people an avenue of where to go, you know, much better. And then it's good learning skill for everybody. So it kind of started out like that. So is there a big difference between, you know, like public safety and, you know, somebody who works for the state health department? So there's a couple of different ways to look at it. Number one is the messaging, how we message or why we're messaging is pretty much all the same. We want to get information out to the public. But on the other end of it is, is what information matters to the public from the version of a public health, public information officer. Their message is, in most cases, is preventative. It's going to be general information of, about getting health care, things along those lines. Like during the pandemic, obviously, there was a ton of information that was going out and a ton of misinformation. So a lot of their job was to correct a lot of misinformation and also to give good information out to the public about where they can get vaccinations, where they could get services and so on. On the law enforcement side, a lot of times our information that we're putting out is about things that are as they're unfolding, whether it's vehicle crash where the roadway's blocked or whether it's a uh, major incident where there's a mass shooting. Our, our jobs are still getting information out there. It's just the topic or the immediacy of it. Sometimes it changes how we do it. Okay. And I can say that, you know, my experience being a community reporter during the pandemic, the health department people, even though they were very swamped, they were very concerned about making sure that the correct information got out. So they were very accessible. You know, they would call you or send you an email and say, hey, you've got the time wrong here or, you know, this is not going to be this location or, or something else. You know, they recognized that journalists were important conduits of our audiences, you know, getting that information out there. And, and for us, it was important to, you know, be able to have the access to that information that we could verify and that, that we could sort of share out. And sometimes, you know, that becomes a little difficult with public safety, you know, maybe police in particular, because, you know, there may be a crime that has happened and a suspect has been arrested. And then it becomes this interest in making sure that the suspect is covered fairly, but also, you know, how much information the press is, is going to be able to access and share. Because, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the idea that, you know, you want to preserve the evidence or, or the, the case against an individual. We have a symbiotic relationship with the news media. Our job is 
to provide you guys information so that you can get it out to the public. And that's our job. We want to do that for the most part. When the issue becomes a problem for us, a lot of times is when we're talking about victims and the arrest, not so much of an issue. We put their mugshot out. We put the information about how, what they were charged with general information about the case. And of course, on some very high profile cases, people are going to want to know more details. And I understand that. But when it becomes questions where it's kind of invasive to victims, sometimes we as PIOs get very protective of the victims because in some cases, the public does not need to know that somebody was stabbed 75 times. We could just say they were stabbed multiple times. We don't need to read the arrest affidavit or provide all of that information to the media. You guys are going to dig it up. You're going to go get that arrest affidavit from, from the court system. So I think our job is provide the information, but try and be cognizant that we have victims. And some of those victims, many of them are juveniles. Many of them are victims of like trafficking and things along those lines. And there's so many are sensitive issues that come out of that, that we don't want to as a human, I don't want to re-victimize somebody that's been targeted and, and victimized for years. And I've always approached things about protecting the victim's right of privacy because they've been a victim. Something happened to them and their life is forever changed because of that incident. You know, I think of like if a, a high school girl was a victim of a tragic crime and then the case is going through the process. And as we get towards mid-April or May, as the case unfolds and then the media starts bringing up things in the, in the court case where the affidavit talks about violence and, and this extreme, extreme level of violence, you have to remember that if that girl is 17 years old, she's graduating from high school and her friends that are alive or that know her are experiencing or hearing this again and being re-victimized right before they're going to graduate from high school. And that emotional impact, it can do a lot of damage. So the way I kind of look at it is, yes, the media has got to get the information out, but at what cost is jumping to the sensational? And obviously I know we all have to make money and, we have responsibilities to the organization because without making money, none of us are going to be here. It's not going to happen in the private sector. And I understand that. We have to have that level of, okay, we're not going to go there because it doesn't serve the public's. There's no public need to know that level of violence that occurred. You can articulate it pretty easily without having to go into graphic detail. Yeah, that's where it sort of falls onto the the ethics of the the journalist and, and the organization. It's like, what was it we're going to report? There was a big incident within the last year in, in Virginia where, you know, tragically a, an elementary school child shot a teacher. And, you know, we received a lot of comments and, and you know, people emailing us is like, why aren't you naming the, the child? Why, or why aren't you naming the parent? You know, because this is important because, you know, the parent is the is most likely somehow responsible for this happening. So then it's like, well, we can't name the parent. 
if you name the parent, then you identify the, the child. You know, the police department has a particular, you know, they have a policy. You, you don't share information about juveniles. It became an issue for us in trying to explain that to people. But then sometimes there'll be a news organization in another part of the state, not for this particular story, but for other stories where they go right ahead and the name is out there. And it's like, well, then do you keep it in your reporting because it's out there or, you know, the thing is, you just have to concentrate. You have to focus on that. And what, what is your ethical measure? You know, what does the public need to know? Right. I understand that very tough balance for the journalist or the reporter that has to do the work because they get pushed by their editors and their producers and so on to come up with more. And we understand as PIOs that, you know, in the morning you walk in for your morning meeting, they're telling you, okay, give me your three pitches for today. What stories are you going to do? And we know that there's that pace. And if you don't produce, you run into that problem of maybe you won't be a reporter or maybe you won't be writing an article because you're not coming up with good stories. And I think what we have to think about is our own personal ethics and what would we want to have put out about ourselves if we were the person that was put into that position. I think that's kind of a good way of looking at it is, and I think a lot of people forget this and there's cops that have done bad things and they have gotten in trouble. And the first thing that used to happen a lot is that we would circle the wagons and protect that, that officer's reputation and protect them to the detriment of the organization and obviously to the detriment of the, the public in, in a whole. And now you're seeing more and more agencies are putting that information out there pretty quickly when officers make mistakes and when they screw up, you know, with the Derek Chauvin and the, the George Floyd incident, you know, I hate to say that there's something wrong, but the initial press release that was put out was utter nonsense because somebody else provided that information to the PIO and they didn't have all the details. And then that went out and that ran into something that was really a foul. And it's our job as a PIO is to make sure that that information is accurate. So that would have been, hey, what really happened here? I'm starting to hear on social media and we, and we listen to social media all the time and we're monitoring it all the time. And we're starting to hear that he was kneeling on his back for minutes not seconds, minutes, and he refused to, to sit him up and all those other things. That was all out there. It's our job to call that out when it's wrong. Yeah. You know, the, the George Floyd case is, is interesting for a lot of reasons, but the fact that you mentioned social media, that video did not appear, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that appeared, I believe, on social media first. Somebody who was on the street who was shooting that video, it was not a reporter covering it. And maybe a news, a news organization picked it up and amplified it. And so I would imagine that's a different type of pressure and concern for public safety PIOs, knowing that, you know, there may be, there probably will be people out there shooting video of a particular incident, which, again, makes it more pressure to adopt a, a very transparent policy for releasing information. Yeah, obviously. I mean, and in this day and age with cell phones and everybody's got a camera all the way down to your youngest kid, somebody saw something. So we have to understand, we're going to know that pretty quickly. If you're monitoring social media, you're going to hear 
the contempt and the anger and you're going to see the snippets of video being passed back and forth. Inevitably, everybody's going to post if they've got something because nowadays it's beneficial to them because so many people are content creators and so many people are hoping to get their name out there that it opens up that door for something to come out that the agency's not aware of. Look at the incident that happened in in Memphis with the officers there. That was pretty well kept quiet for a while. And the only reason that kind of broke is because of the video with the dispatcher that moved the cameras. Otherwise, that incident may not have become very public initially. You know, we, you don't necessarily like to think about it, but sometimes there's a political point of view that's sort of guiding or that can guide public information about an agency or something. And so you have particular people who are assigned to it. You know, what's the pressure on public affairs people of, I, I don't want to say if you want to toe the line or present the point of view of that agency? All right. So policy is something that we don't, we don't set as a public information officer. Policy comes from the executive of the organization that can be dictated by the city government or the state government or the federal government, depending on what organization you're with. So from, for our point of view as like from a municipal PIO, our job is to gather what somebody's asking and then we're going to go and present that to the executive that is in charge of that particular issue, whether that policy is something that we we could address if they provide a statement or we're going to have them sit down and do an interview with that particular executive, the chief, the sheriff, you know, the mayor, whoever it might be, depending on what your responsibility is. Our job is not to talk about policy. It's to bring the, the policymaker to the media if there's an inquiry about a policy, whether it's the chief of staff or their, you know, their deputy mayor, whoever it might be. Our job is not to talk about the policy, the legal stuff that comes into play, legislative positions, things along those lines. That's not our job to talk about. It would be inappropriate because number one, I'm not a, I'm not at the level that deals with policy. The executive can turn around and say, this is my position. And he provides a written statement or she provides a written statement or they provide a, an interview and all we're going to do is reiterate what they've said. But we're never going to actually initially talk about policy when a phone call or an inquiry comes in because that opens up the door for us to run a file of what the executive or the organization wants to have. You know, having talked to more than, you know, 100 public affairs people on your podcast, are there themes that sort of emerge of issues that everybody seems to be facing or difficulties or successes for that matter? Are there things that are, that are good that are happening that they're trying to share with other people? Amazingly, we see a, a really variety of issues depending on the discipline, whether it's police, fire, EMS, you know, local government, federal agency. And I've talked to pretty much all of those in the interviews that I've done. We want to get information out, you know, but sometimes because of, of like an ongoing investigation or we can't share information, not right away, that there are times that we understand that you guys have to ask the question, but we're not going to be able to answer it. Not initially. 
So that sometimes becomes problematic. And then the other issue is, is I get phone calls and our colleagues, the colleagues in, in the field get phone calls. We're not always monitoring the radio or the call log or the call screen. So frequently we get phone calls. Oh yeah, this is going on. Can you tell me about it? I don't know anything about it yet because it hasn't filtered to my level because it's too, too fresh and new. So a lot of times I got to say, hey, listen, let me look into it and then I'll get back to you. In most cases, the media is pretty good about it. And other times they're like, well, there's 60 police officers running around. I still haven't heard about it yet unless it's been something that we've been advised that they're doing it in advance. You know, sometimes you just don't get that information. Filtering up sometimes to the PIO sometimes can be difficult. And that depends on the agency and how big it is and you know, what they're doing. Chicago has their mobile media car out there. They have a car that sole job is to go from call to call to call. And that was something that Anthony Guglielmi came up with when he first became the communications director for CPD. And that mobile media car was staffed with two people that were sworn, but they would literally, their job is public information officers. They would go to a scene, videotape, and put word out what was going on pretty immediately. So that was their primary job. Some of the other things that we want to do is we want to make sure we share as much information as we can. So I think what most PIOs have been doing that's been successful is they've been very good about getting video out when they can. I think one of the the most interesting things is for smaller media markets is they need B-roll or they need photos. And a lot of times they can't get to the scene because they're a one-person operation or they're on another interview. And if we can provide them with video or photos or whatever, we're, we're doing a much better job of providing that filler that they need for their stories. Yeah. So how can journalists improve their communications with public information officers? Get to know the public information officers, sit down with them, meet them, say, hey, look, can I meet and have a cup of coffee with you? Or can I meet and have a, an iced coffee with you for 10 minutes of their time? Or, hey, can you stop over at the studio and, and we'll sit down and, and have a conversation? I think getting that one-on-one -on -one conversation helps a long way in building that level of trust between both. And I think that's important. They have a level of trust because... You know, sometimes we can give information that's off the record that will provide them an avenue, the reporter, an avenue to go, but we also don't want to get burned. And if we don't have that level of trust, that makes it harder for us to provide that information. So I think getting to know the PIO and that relationship with the journalists is it, it helps to evolve their ability to get the information that they need when they need it. One of the first things I did years ago was I went into a TV newsroom and sat down and listened to their pitches in a staff meeting and learned to understand that they're not working one story at a time. They're working three, four, five, six, depending on the, their responsibilities. And when they're calling me asking for information, it gave me a much better understanding of okay, how quickly they're going to need this information. And then can I turn that information, can I get it and turn it around and give it to them in a timely fashion? Sometimes, you know, the one thing I think I hate the most is I'll get that phone call at 2 o'clock and they said, yeah, we're doing a story at 
for the five o'clock and I need this information, you know, before three thirty. That's probably not going to happen. I mean, you you probably knew you were going to need statistics. You probably should have asked a lot earlier for that information. I've been guilty of that <laughs> on occasion. <laughs> and the answer I get back is, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do that in that time. You know, sometimes you push back and say, really? But other times you're like, okay, maybe I can wait until 10 tomorrow morning. But I better not see it on the 11 o'clock news <laughs> because you gave it to somebody else. Typically, when somebody asks me for statistics, if I get multiple requests from different organizations, I'm sending it to everybody. I'm not giving somebody an exclusive if it's more than one agency asking for it. It's not the right thing to do. If it's only one person asks, I'm only giving it out to one person. And, of, of course, everybody will play catch up. But if somebody's working on a story and they come to me first and they say, this is what I have, you know, can you get me this information? If I can get it in a timely fashion and give it to them, and then their story breaks, and I've gotten this one many times, well, oh, yeah, we saw this on another competitor's webpage. Can you send us that information? To me, what I hate about that is that's kind of, in a sense, it's lazy journalism. I get it because obviously, especially in the TV industry, it's about clicks and and views. Robert, thank you for talking. This is a great conversation about something that really kind of interests me a lot. You know, good luck with your your podcast, the PIO podcast, which I guess can be found on Apple Podcasts and all the, the places where people get podcasts. I would encourage people to listen to a few episodes. Definitely check to see if your PIO was in it for you. Maybe bring that up in, when you go have a cup of coffee with your uh, We're your always PIO. looking for a new guest. So if as a journalist, you don't see your PIO in the list of uh, the ones that I've interviewed, let me know. I've got, I set up interviews all the time. So I'm always looking to add somebody. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Belefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.